2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for joining us. Not many people know that the recipe for macaroni and cheese was developed by James Hemmings, a chef trained in the art of French cooking whom Thomas Jefferson kept enslaved. That story is just one of many incredibly compelling themes explored in the Netflix series High on the Hog. The show documents how African-American cuisine transformed America. Chef, wine maven, and food journalist Steven Satterfield is host of the docuseries, and he recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom. Satterfield started their conversation by explaining the title of the show, High on the Hog.
1: So the title is taken from the source material of the docuseries, which is a book written by the food historian Dr. Jessica B. Harris who is in my estimation our nation's leading scholar on African diasporic foodways and the title itself is explained in in more colorful detail at the onset of the book but it is a colloquialism essentially meaning Living well, living high on the hog is a reference to the more favorable or the more choice cuts of meat on the pig. And so in this context, if you are living high on the hog, then you are enjoying the the finer cuts put, I think, in the most simple terms.
3: Although we learn in this series how people can create gourmet recipes out of those lower parts of the hawk you affectionately refer to dr harris as dr j would you talk about what it was like collaborating with her
1: yes indeed as she would say she's the one who can't dunk a basketball Uh, (laughs) but yeah so so dr j for food professionals, I think, has long been known and regarded as, as I mentioned, really one of our most treasured thinkers in the realm of African diasporic food. And I actually first encountered Dr. J's work in about 2008 or nine. I had recently started a nonprofit organization at the time, working with black owned wineries and black wine professionals in South Africa's Western Cape. And it was really through my own journey and discovery of food and wine as a powerful catalyst to tell stories and to facilitate at least an environment where a deepening of empathy was possible. And I looked at food and wine as a way to um, not only facilitate those oftentimes difficult conversations, but as a way to explore my own identity and the the Black American identity through the perspective of food, which, as I often say, is really a, a story of migration. And so, you know, looking at Black food culture as an opening to an investigation of one's own identity and ancestral journey Along with being able to talk about things from land-based politics to displacement to slavery, which are, as I mentioned, hard to get to in polite society, Dr. J really, for me, was the one who taught me what the realm and range of food scholarship could be and how that range far extended beyond restaurant reviews and restaurant criticism, which was for the most part, the way in which at that time, I understood the bounds of food journalism.
3: Mm. Episode one focuses on your time with Dr. Harris in Benin, a small West African country that was once a major departure point for the transatlantic slave
2: trade.
1: It was very powerful to watch. I just feel like, you know, the experience of seeing my own likeness... Isn't it? ...reflected. Isn't it? ...in the hair. I see our style and the garments and how we wear stuff. And I in our swagger. Our swagger, our ingenuity, our resourcefulness.
3: In the episode, you state... It's like coming home to a place I've never been. Will you elaborate on that experience for us?
1: I think that feeling is a feeling that many, many folks have felt across time and space. And it's really a commentary on displacement. You know, as you well know, African people were forcibly removed from their homes and taken on this unimaginable and horrific voyage to a new world and miraculously managed to not just adapt, but as we see throughout the docuseries, thrive and contribute meaningfully to what we now call U.S. culture. But that particular sentiment is around the the longing that displacement creates. And sometimes that longing is felt and experienced as a reverberation, as an echo, as a descendant. And it's a peculiar feeling because, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. I, I am a fifth generation AT alien. And so my, <laughs> my roots and my identity are squarely bound in the city and yet going to West Africa and having the the palpable feeling of this point of departure, this point of no return, I think for for me and for many who have had the experience of returning to their ancestral homeland creates uh, an intensity of emotion that's really hard to explain, but very, very easy to feel. Uh, and I think members of many diasporas, from Asian diasporas or even religious uh, diasporas, Jewish diasporas, who have all are immigrants, um, refugees, anyone who has found themselves in a new homeland, whether the migration was planned or was forced, I really think that, you know, as I mentioned, the the sort of descendants of these voyages are bound to the homeland in ways that are are really hard to understand, even for the offspring in my case, but it's really, really clear. And it's really palpable once we have the opportunity to make that voyage.
3: Oh, palpable is the perfect description for it, Stephen. Memory, blood memory is central to this series In the end of episode one, you walk the road enslaved people once traveled in Benin, a four-day journey on foot, shackled in chains. And then later, you pay homage to the people who died before being forced onto those ships. To say it was emotional is an understatement. What did you take away from that
1: experience? I'm still in process, to be honest. You know, it's been almost two years since we filmed that scene. And every time I reflect on it, I think I take away something slightly different. But I think the most prevailing feeling is just the, the intensity of emotion of really kind of absorbing this gruesome history. And in in this context, it was the the actual grounds that we were standing on, which were a mass grave for those who were not fit enough to make the voyage. You know, as I reflect back on, on that experience, I'm immensely grateful to have been a part of it. I'm immensely grateful that the show was was made and that scenes like that were kept and included because it really, I think more than you know, we could in its absence allows people to understand the trauma, the generational lingering trauma of African descendants. And I really think that, you know, for me, what I hope this work Does for people of all races uh, and nationalities, I really hope that there is an opening for a potential for greater or expanded human empathy. That is my greatest hope. And I think that, you know, a lot of times we have not really seen in media and recounting of the the stories embedded within and around the transatlantic voyage, you know, we really have have missed out on a lot of the not necessarily gruesome details of the experience, but really those those more subtle moments, the quieter moments, the contemplative moments where we really see on screen What that impact has done to many, many generations of, in this case, in context, descendants of African people in the U.S. And I don't know if we could have been more effective in really kind of demonstrating that deep and lingering emotional bond other than just to let the camera capture what was a very real moment. And I hope in that moment there was a greater Capacity for understanding, which I believe is the gateway to empathy, which I, I you know, I, I think we all could use a little more of right now. Yes.
3: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights is speaking with Stephen Satterfield, host of the docu series High on the Hog, in a lighter moment. Of episode one, you and Dr. Harris visit a market and we learn that okra is the connector from Africa to America. And you talk about the difference between yams, which are native to Africa, and sweet potatoes, which aren't. What do we ultimately learn about? An elephant toe.
1: <laughs> we learn um, that if we're looking at a tuber that appears to look like the toe of an elephant, that we're looking at a yam and not a sweet <laughs> potato. And it's a it's a vitally important lesson that um, hopefully we've straightened a lot of folks from the U.S. out on. It's a great story in that it really kind of explains so much. Um, obviously, you know, in, in this this voyage we didn't have an opportunity to bring our native foods and our native food traditions. And so a lot of the experience of Black Americans has long been about adaptation. And so as we see with sweet potatoes, we have a tuber that is somewhat similar in in style and structure, especially from a culinary perspective. And so it becomes adopted in the African-American diet, and it becomes so ubiquitous in its adoption that all kinds of Americans, but especially Black Americans to this day, still use yams and sweet potatoes interchangeably. A point that causes our great historian friend and uh, mentor, Dr. J, a a lot of consternation. She really, (laughs) really wants people to know the difference between a yam and a sweet potato. And um, this was a a very, very public service announcement by way of this Netflix docuseries.
3: (laughs) It is indeed. It's certainly instructive. And it's also another example of the resilience of the African people who landed in the New World because they made the best of sweet potatoes. That was what seemed the closest to yams. That's right. One of your guests explains that to understand Benin is to understand resilience. I love when you visit Envier, a water village, and you have a meal. You mentioned that your dad would fry fish every Sunday for the entire congregation at your church.
1: Yes, it's true. My dad, um, and these are some of my very earliest memories in life. You know, age four, age five, particularly in the in the summertime when there's more kids around, there's more daylight. I very well remember plenty of occasions of my father setting up right on the lawn of the church. This was Turner Road Church and basically, you know, hundreds of people queuing up for for plates of fried fish. And I love that so much because it's so emblematic of of my father, Sam, and his love of of food and cooking, but really as a means of connecting and building community. And, you know, our household has always been the place where family and friends come to convene and celebrate or even mourn. And I am quite sure that my my interest in food, which began at a very young age in life when I was still a high schooler, can be largely credited to watching my father in the kitchen, not just his facility in the kitchen and his genuine love of cooking, but the way in which he had so clearly connected it to a means of, of deepening community and deepening family And I think that is the part of food and the part of food that we we talk about when we talk about the one's identity and that relationship, um, which are so inextricably bound and which are so powerful and which I believe uh, with a little more scrutiny and imagination can be used for a really, really massive force for good. In other words, using food as a way to learn more about who we are learn more about our relationships from a historical context that inform the ways in which we relate to each other, you know, to this very day. And I, I really don't think that there's anything that quite tells that story better than food. And this sort of fried fish antidote, I think is one small
2: example of that. Stephen Satterfield, host of the Netflix docuseries High on the Hogs, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. We'll return to more of their conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, thank you for joining us. We've been listening to Stephen Satterfield, host of the Netflix series High on the Hog, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Episode two of the docuseries takes us to Charleston, South Carolina, the largest port of entry for Black Americans in the U.S., Here, Satterfield discusses the seeds that came with enslaved Africans and the vital role that Rice played in establishing America's wealth.
1: Charleston was, as mentioned, the largest port of entry for Black Americans in the United States. I think the stats are that at one point, three out of five Black folks in the United States had arrived by way of Charleston. So this was a hugely important epicenter and trading center for Black Americans and the furthering of the transatlantic slave trade. The reason that this industry was booming is because of a global demand for Carolina gold rice. Carolina Gold is a specific variety of rice that is obviously from Charleston, South Carolina. And rice is a very difficult grain to cultivate and to grow. And while Charleston and South Carolina has optimal kind of swampy conditions for the cultivation of rice, they did not, and I say they, I'm speaking of European settlers, did not have the acumen or the aptitude to plant this notoriously fickle grain. And so what they had to do was to plunder the West Coast of Africa and Senegambia and Sierra Leone and what is known as the rice coast of Africa to bring Africans to the United States, obviously against their will, specifically because of their deep, deep knowledge of how to grow rice. And the reason that I think this is so important, there's a couple reasons. Number one, we have to understand that the foundational wealth of the nation was created by not just Black hands and bodies, which I I feel for all Americans were a little too quick to fall into those particular tropes, what's actually true is that the establishment of this wealth, which was created by Black people, was created by intellectual capital. So in other words, it was the fact that Black folks had the farming knowledge that was equally, if not more important than the fact that they were big and strong, right? Which is, again, part of, a, I think, a a dangerous recurring trope that we think about when we think about Black people in bondage and enslaved. And so, you know, that episode for me was a very important opportunity for us to talk about, you know, origins, the origins of wealth, the origins of of really Black people to a large degree in the United States, and really tying our arrival and our story in my mind, in in a means of, of reclamation. And so that as a Black American, even though the situation was horrible, I actually find solace in knowing that we were made captives not because we were brutes, but because we were brilliant. And so that is what I choose to hold on to and try to project outward when we talk about that story in particular. But to your original point, Charleston is a place that continues to haunt me every time I find myself there. And I'm sorry if anyone is from Charleston or has a particular affinity for it. But, you know, I, I think that very eerie history, is still very much on the surface of the city.
3: Yeah. In that episode, in episode two, during your talk with the Anson Mills founder, Glenn Roberts, you ask him specifically and earnestly about his role as a white man profiting from grains originally grown using Black slave labor in a series filled with complex stories. Was that scene especially difficult to film?
1: Um, it was complex, as you said, you know, I think that's exactly the right word because it's a question that needed to be asked. And yet it's a question that couldn't have been asked to just anyone, right? Glenn, has for many years been the most vocal champion of Carolina Gold Rice, the aforementioned. And not only a champion, but really bringing it back into our lives and in our worlds in a way that you know we can buy it online. And so he has a unique role in this story as kind of a, a liaison between these two worlds, this modern world that we're discussing. And You know, this centuries old world, which is about the origins of wealth in South Carolina and in the country more broadly. I know for a fact, because I've known Glenn for many years, that he has been a very supportive advocate for many black chefs in the restaurant industry across the U.S., including some of the chefs who were featured in the program whose relationship with Glenn preceded the filming of the show. And so I'm saying all of this because I, I really think it's important for people to do their own research about Anson Mill and, and, and Glenn Roberts, because he really has been, I think, in fairness, uh, you know, a really great champion for, for many Black chefs in particular. That being said... It doesn't change the underlying power dynamics in the way in which he has chosen to and continues to make a living. And you know, I'm I'm also a media entrepreneur in addition to being a journalist. I, I have a media company and a magazine. And for a long time, we were the only black print magazine focusing on food in the United States. This is Whetstone. This is Whetstone Magazine and Whetstone Media, and and today, you know, we are one of a handful, but yet on an ownership level, we we still have failed to see real gains in equity from an ownership class, and the transition that we have observed in media is that the reporters or the journalists are growing more diverse because newsrooms. And brands are recognizing that this need for diversity isn't a nice to have, it's essential. But again, we aren't seeing real structural change because who owns the media? It's the same folks who have always owned the media. And we see this across industries and the same is true in Rice. And so while I applaud his his efforts of mentorship and of various reparative efforts that he's made both publicly and privately. I thought it was really important for this inherent tension to be made plain, because we, we need, honestly, especially folks who are well-intentioned and open-minded, to sit in this complexity, to sit with this complexity, as a means of really understanding what their role in this trade in this case rice really is there there's it's not possible to be a benevolent actor even as a well-intentioned and good-natured person and i think that reality while complicated can also be the beginning of more progressive more radical action which includes bringing more of your colleagues along as a white male who is in a position of power right it's bringing your colleagues along bringing your family along bringing those like you with similar privileges into the same kind of intellectual space and so i find that was an opportunity for us to use that difficult question to hopefully create an opening for more important conversations, especially among folks who hold power.
3: Yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's speaking with Stephen Satterfield, host of the docuseries High on the Hog. Throughout the episodes of High on the Hog, you share time with some Outstanding African-American chefs. I know there's not time to mention everyone, but would you talk a bit about some of the cooks we meet in the series?
1: There are so many. I'm I, I am so terrified to do this because I know I'm going to leave people out. So I'm preemptively sorry because everyone was so brilliant. I mean, I think a couple meals that stand out for me, for sure, my... Dear friend, Gabrielle Etienne uh, in Apex, North Carolina, who is just an unbelievable chef. Omar Tate in episode three, Philadelphia chef and poet, who is really as much of an artist, I think, as he is a chef, but an incredibly unique talent. Someone whose food I have really just grown to admire as much for its its taste, as its sort of intellectual rigor and the and the thoughts and ideas that underlie um, so much of, of Omar's work, B.J. Dennis, who is an incredible scholar and keeper of of Gullah food traditions, someone I have the utmost respect for. I follow him on Instagram, and it's basically a digital museum, an ongoing archive of all of the incredible contributions of Gullah and and Gullah Geechee ancestors and elders. And he is definitely a, a keeper and embodyer of those traditions and those stories and legacies. And yeah, I, and also a brilliant cook as well. So Those are just three. I I could go on about every single person who was in the show and the talent of the chefs, but apologies that I I don't have more time and that if I tried to, I would for sure leave someone out anyway. But those are just the first three that come to my head.
3: Well, a great start and all the more reason for people to watch the series. I have to tell you that your approach to describing dishes was very relatable to foodies and non-foodies. There is nothing snooty or exclusive in your responses to what you taste, and it made me very hungry, Stephen. I'm wondering if there was a favorite dish you tried
1: while filming the show. Cannot say that I had a favorite But I had a very memorable experience in episode one when we were at the home of the artist Rimwald Hasome in Portonovo in Benin. And Rimwald, along with the help of his sisters and a number of women in the town, had spent days, I mean, four or five days putting together the lunch that you see displayed in episode 1 and it was so incredible because what took so much time is that they had to go and find the women in the neighborhood who remembered these traditional pre-colonial dishes and so it wasn't just that you know we we had a, a traditional meal it's that the entire community was engaged and comparing notes and asking mothers and grandmothers. And the end result was just a stunning array of foods and flavors that were really kind of concurrently foreign, but also familiar. And so, you know, like in terms of techniques, you could taste sour. You could so you could tell there's uh, elements of things that had been fermented. You know, you could you could obviously see the presence of things like plantains and um, the presence of things like yams that we know and recognize. But these are different varieties that we that I've never seen and different varieties that I've never tasted. And of course, the, the application and the technique behind all of the dishes was just incredible. We, we learn about the Dahomey women who were warriors, who had millet that was ground up into little balls and fried as a kind of fast food, you know, as, as, as food to eat. That was nutrient dense, that didn't take up a lot of space or weigh a lot and could sustain these incredible women warriors. And so the whole idea of fast food, of taking food on the go, along with the array of pre-colonial flavors, varieties and techniques, it's probably one of the most memorable meals of my life. Mm. It was really incredible.
2: Stephen Satterfield, host of the Netflix docuseries High on the Hog, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. We'll return to more of their conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, and for Lois Reitzes, thanks for listening. Today we've been hearing from Steven Satterfield, the host of the Netflix series High on the Hog, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Episode three of the docuseries takes us to Philadelphia, where we learn the amazing history of both Washington and Jefferson's enslaved chefs, Hercules Posey and James Hemings. Here, Satterfield shares what Hemings' brother, Peter, had to do in order to get James to finally be granted his freedom.
1: This is a story that is, I think for a lot of people, one of the biggest revelations of the entire series. So James Hemings was essentially the first celebrity chef in the US. I think it's fair to say he was Thomas Jefferson's enslaved chef who was born in Virginia, but he actually went to France to learn how to become a professional cook which sounds great until you realize that, again, he was born enslaved, and so all of the skills that he developed uh, were not for his own artistic expressions, but, you know, because he was enslaved and he served you know, one of the the forefathers of the of the United States, uh, Thomas Jefferson, a famous francophile and foodie, it, it, it should be said. So this was, um, in my view, <laughs> it's really just an incredibly self serving thing to have your your chef sent two pairs to come back um, so that you know they can cook uh, whatever they'd like to for you. But Heming's story is is difficult. He was also the older brother of Sally Hemings, making him a half-sibling of Jefferson's wife, Martha. And so at the end of of his life and career, you know, he, of course, wants to be free and tries to plea or appeal to Jefferson for his freedom, upon which time he is told that The freedom is contingent upon him training his brother to take his place. And obviously, that was a put mildly difficult, if not impossible decision. And we don't know all of the details around the ending of James Heming's life, but we do know, or it is said that he died by suicide shortly after returning to Monticello at the very end of his life so it's there's a lot going on with the story especially you know from the Hemmings perspective and we know that that Martha Jefferson was for a long time widely credited with many of the recipes and dishes that we now know were actually James Hemings's recipes but that episode in particular i think really stuck with people because we learn about the origins of mac and cheese yeah. as as a creation of James Hemings and it's it's this really like surprisingly thrilling moment for people and especially a lot of black americans who have such a close and strong association with macaroni and cheese as part of our soul food you know, pantheon, yet we had never really even considered the origins of this dish were made possible by a Black chef. So we've been making mac and cheese here, and I understand that you are a descendant of the Hemings.
3: I am, I am. I am related to the entire Hemings family. James Hemings would have been my great-great-great-great-uncle. His brother Peter was my great-great-great-grandfather. And so... I feel a special relationship to this mac and cheese rightfully so
2: so
1: So you must have grown up eating mac and cheese
3: well sure we all did didn't we yeah we all did right yeah and
1: so um how did it feel once you realized that you were a descendant of the person or the family that helped popularize this dish in the u.s
3: well first of all i didn't grow up with that knowledge i didn't learn that until recently And now that I know that, I'm wondering where my royalties are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We're all wondering that, actually.
3: (laughs) Um, And beyond that, um, listen, it's really um, an honor. I'm lucky enough to know that history. But every Black American has something like that in their backgrounds. They just don't know it. Mm -hmm. So I'm honored, I'm privileged, and I can't wait to taste this
0: mac and cheese.
1: So I think, you know, Hemings' story... As complicated as it can be, I, I love the fact that it leads people to an origin story of mac and cheese that is both a reclamation or a source of pride, depending on, on the audience. So we've gotten a lot of feedback about the Hemmings mac and cheese.
3: <laughs> well, knowing about James Hemmings' training as a French chef makes me further appreciate Marcus Mm Samuelson's mac and cheese, which is is so rich in butter and cream and, uh, you know, the French.
1: Yes, yes.
3: In episode three, we also learn the history of Thomas Downing, the son of freed slaves, who transformed the dingy oyster bars of New York into the places politicians and businessmen went for a fine dining experience. Yes. Yet another piece of history not well known. Were you surprised to learn that, Stephen?
1: Yes, yes. This is one of my favorite stories in High on the Hog. I love this story of Mr. Downing, the oyster man. And the reason that I love Thomas Downing's story so much is that it is a a story of reclamation, which is a word that I use a lot, which also informs the spirit of this series. Because so much of of what we know, or we think we know about American foodways, which is really just, you know, American history, is completely inaccurate or incomplete especially for, for Black Americans, you know, we don't think about oysters as part of our culinary legacy or history. I have rarely found Black folks in my family or my friends and loved ones to be really, really big fans of oysters unless they were, you know, like serious gourmands. It's unusual. Yet, I love that Downing was an incredibly successful businessman selling oysters, which were at the time, I know it's hard to think of now, but at the time they were just pennies. All of New York City was just covered in mounds and mounds of of oyster shells and Downing was able to really create great wealth for himself. And this is why I love his story. Not only was he a successful restaurateur using oysters to, to grow wealth for himself, but his restaurants were also safe places along the Underground Railroad. So in the basement of his restaurants, he would keep and house enslaved Africans who were trying to flee captivity. And so he, he was really an exemplary member of the Black community and Black society, not just because of his success as an entrepreneur, but he was really invested in using that success and opportunity and privilege to help liberate his people. My friend, Chef Omar Tate, has dedicated his craft and art to Thomas Downing and other Black entrepreneurs of the mid-Atlantic states.
0: I mean, particularly with this dish, Um, because Thomas Downing is unique and very specific to the New York story, I wanted to bring together things that are specific and unique to New York in general, so. Recipe for New York Oyster Stew, circa 1826, for Thomas Downing. Made from hand-gathered oysters, as many as one can carry. Sea salt and lime and mineral deposits displayed high as the galoshes and then some. Cook time, several moons. Add cream and allow it to reduce. Reduce it till there's nothing but brown, rich, and plenty. Until it reduces and it's no longer white. Until it reduces your suffering. Until it reduces the time between when you last saw your wife, children, mother. Reduce it down, slow, and patient. Pro tip, watch carefully. Cream rises and spills over. Serve hot immediately.
1: And I also love the, the story because at the end of his life, You know, we learned that Downing, whose restaurant was right in the the financial heart of New York City, when we think about, you know, Wall Street, that's where this was all happening. So there's also the, the symbolic power of this happening on Wall Street. And at the end of Downing's life, the banks all close and everyone comes out to pay their respects to Mr. Downing, members of the business community, the financial community. And I really think it just says so much about how he carried himself as a pioneering restaurateur, as a respected businessman, and, of course, also as a Black man who used his privilege to become a legendary abolitionist as well.
3: I think he's worthy of a
1: series. I would agree with you. Netflix, if you're listening. (laughs) Well, you should
3: have some clout with (laughs) them. Yeah, a dramatized series. How are you at acting? Um, I don't know, actually. I've never tried it. There you go. No. Something to practice for. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, speaking with Stephen Satterfield, host of the docu series i on the Hog. Episode four brings the series to a conclusion in Texas where, aside from exploring the history of Juneteenth and barbecue and black cowboys, you travel to a rodeo and give us a laugh out loud (laughs) moment reacting to the bull riders. (laughs) Would you describe more about
1: that? Yes. Gosh, what to say? I mean, it was my first rodeo, literally. Um, (laughs) And... I was really, um, I mean, I don't know if listeners have been to a rodeo, then I think people will attest, but it's so much more intense and aggressive in real life than what you see on the movies. I mean, (laughs) these, it's hard to describe, I think, how intense it is in real life, but in terms of the story itself, in episode four, we we learn a lot, but one of the most notable things that we learn is about the origins of this word, even cowboy. And we learned that actually because of a growing demand for beef in the United States, that they needed cattle hands in Texas to rear the steer, to rear the cattle. And so this became one of the very few jobs In the country for Black folks at the time, and really became such a prominent part of of Black culture and labor in Texas, that at one point, almost half of the the cowboys, between a quarter to a half, were actually Black. And we learned that in the language of the word cowboy, and the, the image and likeness and the notion of cowboy, which has been presented to us through the mythology of John Wayne was actually once a derogatory word emphasis on on boy so demeaning a demeaning name to call a black man, you know black men as the boys who handled the cows or the cattle is actually you know derivative of a term and occupation that uh, not only wasn't, prestigious, but was really looked down upon. And so when we see the stories of the Hollywoodification, if you will, of cowboys, and uh, again, as personified by John Wayne, there's a really, I think, important thing happening there that's easy to miss without scrutiny. And that thing is about a historical erasure in the same way that a lot of Black Americans still today don't think that oysters are for us or or that we have no relationship to oysters. That's just simply historically inaccurate. And so while it may feel like a novelty to see a Black person riding a bull or the notion of of Black cowboys feels esoteric or even avant-garde, the truth is this is a really big part of our history and identity in Texas. And another example of how Black ingenuity and labor really helped grow the wealth of the country. And a further example of why this series
3: and Dr. Harris's book are a corrective for that.
1: Mm, Absolutely.
3: One of the most memorable moments for me in this series was the part of your conversation with Michael Twitty when he says about soul food we are the only people who named their food after something transcendental mm. stephen thank you for helping us understand dr harris's lesson that through food we can find out there's more that connects us and separates us it's been a joy to talk with you
1: Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and always your, your questions and presence. What an honor for me. Thank you.
2: Steven Satterfield, host of the Netflix series High on the Hog, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. You can learn more about Satterfield and his acclaimed docuseries High on the Hog on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an Encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the stars of My Name Is Not Mom. The live performance is a hilarious journey through motherhood with internet sensations Tiffany Jenkins, Meredith Masony, and Dina Blizzard. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash There, you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzes. Our producer is Summer Evans and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes and I encourage you to follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Coming up Sunday, August 15th is WABE's Mixtape Live, our very first outdoor music festival, and it features entrance to NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. The event is going on at Sweetwater Brewery from noon till 5 p.m. once again on Sunday, August 15th. And while there, you'll hear from six different performers and the whole thing is hosted by comedian Mark Kendall general admission is free, but VIP tickets are also available for purchase. If you're interested in learning more, head over to wabe.org and there you'll learn more information about the event as well as the COVID safety protocols. We're looking forward to a day of outdoor fun, music, and community, and I really hope we see you there. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Bye.